A few months ago, I was online looking at some um, teachings of Bhikkhu Bodhi. He does a lot of online retreats and talks and teachings uh, through the Buddhist Association of the United States. It's, um, it's probably affiliated with where he lives in the monastery back in Carmel, New York. And he's constantly teaching. Um, and if you don't get to the retreat, it's fine because it's all uploaded on YouTube. So you can access these, these teachings and retreats and daylongs anytime. And one of the ones he did, I had never heard before or forgot I heard if I had heard it. And he taught something called the Four Protective Meditations. And I think it was a five-week class. And uh, the Four Protective Meditations, that comes from the Visuddhimagga, which is a, a fifth century um in the 5th century, this um, monk and scholar, Buddha Gosa, systematized the, the teachings in the Pali Canon. And in the, in the Visuddhimagga, there are 40 subjects of meditation that Buddha Gosa goes into. And instead, the, some early, early Theravadan teacher said instead of those 40 pieces of meditation or, or subjects of meditation, they pulled out four that they thought would be, as they said, protective, protective uh, meditations. And um, when I first heard it, before I started looking into it, it sounded a little magical because there can be some magical aspects to um, Buddhist teachings. And, but it's really... There may be some, but what I found is protective to me means that these are practices that are so grounded and that I can be so grounded with them that it almost serves as a base, uh, a place to land. It's how I like to talk about the Eightfold Path. It's that ground I have that offers me... Um, uh, a refuge, so to speak, so that if I'm in the, you know, caught up in the eight worldly winds or this place of, of, of indecision or delusion or something, I can, I can go back to these teachings and go, okay, this gives me some bearings, this gives me a container, this helps me move through um, um, what I'm, what I'm caught up in and allows me to, uh, have some space and have some direction and maybe um, let go of some of the dukkha, some of the suffering that I'm probably caught up in. So I wanted to talk about these tonight. And uh, they are four, as I said. Recollection of the Buddha is the first one, mindfulness of the Buddha. Uh, metta is the second one. And I, I know you're all familiar with metta, loving kindness practice. The third one is um, 32 parts of the body, which I'm sure you're also familiar with. And the fourth one is a death meditation, which I'm also sure you're familiar with. So I wanted to go through these um, a little bit tonight to offer, uh, offer them. And I think the one that is less familiar is the one that's the recollection of the Buddha. And 
really it's like uh, it's when we take refuge in the Buddha. This is a much deeper dive into that taking refuge in the Buddha. What does that mean? And there's a couple of um, there's a couple of suttas in the Anguttara Nikaya. One of them says a line. It says, "There's one thing that, when developed and cultivated, leads to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nibbana. What is that one thing? Recollection of the Buddha." And then there's another uh, sutta that says that they understand the Buddha as um, the Blessed One is a, a name they call the Buddha. He is an arahant, perfectly enlightened, accomplished in clear knowledge and conduct, well gone, knower of the world, unsurpassed trainer of persons to be tamed, teacher of devas and humans, the enlightened one, the blessed one. And basically, these are qualities that they're attributing to the Buddha that says there's a reason if, you know, there's a reason we take refuge in this person because he has gotten to Nibbana. He is no longer caught up in the defilements. He has surpassed this. And um, when I was listening to some of the teachings of Bhikkhu Bodhi, he said that they teach, well, if you go and retreat in South or Southeast Asia, oftentimes you'll spend a day or several days just on these meditations before you move into anything else. You'll have the Buddha, the metta, the, the parts of the body and death. That's what you'll be you'll be spending your time with. And um, this the the recollection of the Buddha is almost a gateway into practice in these countries, not here so much where we just sit and we breathe right off the bat there. It's like you're offered a grounding right away. It's like this is why we're doing this, because this is kind of um, where we want to go. We practice to uh have liberation from our suffering, from our struggles, from our attachments. And this is a person who has gotten to that place. And so this is why you want to take refuge. And when you think about it, um, it's it's an act of faith. And by faith, I mean um, faith as it's talked about in the five spiritual faculties, which is a teaching. And it's faith or trust that this stuff will work. Uh, it's, you know, I came to meditation thinking, I'm going to give this a shot because I've heard it works. I don't know what works actually means, but I heard it's good. And so there was a little bit of trust, a little bit of faith, a little bit of curiosity, um, a little bit of I'll give it a shot because why not? And then as I practice, I began to see shifting in my perspective. I began to feel an easing in my constriction and my tightness and how I hold uh, onto the world and began to have different experiences of the world, not so trapped by my mind anymore, not so trapped by my stories because I began to see the conditions that brought them up, see how I was conditioned. Um, and my, my language about I can't help it, that's just the way I am, I saw that that's not true. This is the deep conditioning I have, but I can actually um, find my way through to chipping away at that. And so the more I practice, the deeper my trust is that if I keep going in this direction, I'm probably going to keep having this. 
so this this recollection of the Buddha is like um, faith in the Buddha, faith in the practice, faith that this this is going to work. I trust, and I'm sure y- y'all keep coming back regularly. So I'm guessing that you have a, a flavor. You've tasted that that trust or that faith that 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 this this stuff has made a difference in your lives as well. So um, let me. Uh, yeah, what it, what it said. I have a note here that says this 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 practice, this recollection, this mindfulness of the Buddha protects your mind and practice by maintaining the convict the conviction of the efficacy of the Buddha Dharma. So that, that the Buddha, that this stuff that the Buddha taught works, you know, I've seen it, you've seen it, it works. And that there's a commitment to learning and practicing this Buddha Dharma. I'm, I want to know as much as I can, um, how to disentangle, how to disengage from the things, the places I'm still trapped. I am still trapped. There's places I'm not so trapped anymore, and there's places I'm like, is this one good? Am I going to die first, or is this one going to go away first? It's like it's like a race to the finish line. Uh, but in Buddhist teachings, you know, I get to be reborn and try it again. So get as much you know, much freedom in this life, so there's less to work on in the next life. So what I want to do is just quickly go through these different qualities, uh, which I think is a, is a um, it kind of fleshes out the Buddha, so to speak. I mean, there's a, an even deeper, I mean, we have the story of his life, we know what he did, but this is an even deeper uh, reflection on who he was and and the really extraordinary uh, experience that people who were around him had and why his impact was so so uh, important and still is so important lo these 2600 years later so the first quality says um, he is an arahant perfectly enlightened accomplished uh, He's an arhat, perfectly enlightened. Wait a minute. Stopped. Yes, worthy of veneration, liberated one. And what that means, he's spiritually accomplished, and he has gained liberation, and um, he's fully purified, which means he's not impacted by greed, hatred, or delusion at all. He's totally eliminated all the defilements. He's not caught up in craving. He's not caught up in pushing things away. He's absolutely clear on everything he sees. So there's no delusion. He's fully purified. Uh, the Visuddhi Maga is called the path of purification. I have a, this is, this is, that fifth century um, systematization of the Buddhist teachings. There's a there's a, a lot to chew on here, but um, he the Buddha has gotten rid of or is fully un, um, untethered from the attachments, um, from greed, hatred, and delusion, um, and he's liberated from the cycle of birth and death. He's gone to nibbana. He is unbound. 
And the second one that says he's fully enlightened means that he, some of these are a little redundant, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them, but there's, there, there's like, oh, this one means a little bit of this, and this one means a little bit of that, but sometimes it's like, it's hard to tease out the difference. So fully enlightened, he has, um, he has knowledge of all spiritual principles of the universe, and he knows all the ways that people can achieve enlightenment, you know, so he can, and this, um, a lot of these, they, as with so many of the teachings, they build on each other. So he knows what, he knows all the Dharma doors, so to speak, how we can each, each of us, all the people in this little mosaic here, we each come to this practice from a different direction. We each access it in a different way. And he knows all the different ways that the Dharma can be accessed and the aids to enlightenment. He's also um, endowed with good conduct and behavior and clear knowledge, meaning integrity. He walks through the world with integrity. He doesn't cause harm. You know, that full embodiment of the first precept of not intentionally killing and not causing harm and cultivating compassion. So the Buddha embodies that, absolutely embodies that. He has flawless behavior. He's flawless in his speech and his actions. He acts ethically. He's mindful always to that continuity of mindfulness, not just when he's meditating, but all through his, his experiences, calm demeanor. Even when monks were, um, there's a sutta where uh, different monks were uh, quarreling with each other and he kept trying to help and they just ignored him and he just like said, okay, bye. And he just kind of walked away. Um, he uh, inspires trust. So, and he knows, he has clarity of vision. He sees everything. And he's also, his, the next quality is that he has, he has gone to Nibbana. He has uh, ceased this cycle of birth and death. And he has, the, the, the very famous uh, phrase is, well gone. He's well gone, meaning he has traveled the Eightfold Path. He has traveled the good path, which in the, in the Four Noble Truths, that's the teaching about suffering and the way out of suffering is the Eightfold Path. He's done that Eightfold Path. Um, he is a knower of the world, of all the realms and beings. And in Buddhist cosmology, there's the six realms. There's the God, the, um, the jealous gods. Gods are not the ultimate divine being, but they're, <clears throat> they're a little different realm than humans. Gods, jealous gods, humans animals, hungry ghosts, and hell. So he sees all those realms. He knows who's there. He sees the minds of all the people, and he understands everyone. And because he understands everyone and sees them, <coughs> excuse me, he knows what teaching is appropriate. He knows how best to teach you. And which is why they always talk about, he in the Buddha invited everyone to teach in the vernacular so you can teach, you can talk to folks. And um, knowing what's appropriate. So he could talk to Angulimala, who is a serial killer, and Angulimala could hear him and become enlightened or move into, move into uh, a different way of living, um, take up the robes. He can talk to women, housewives, children, 
lords, um, laborers, and they would all hear what he had to say because the message that he, he just knew how to connect with everyone. So, and then he was a teacher of humans and devas, deities, um, and he fully understands the eight, the four noble truths. And he has um, achieved the qualities, what they call him the blessed one, someone of good fortune, meaning that he's got all, you know, the teachings of the paramis, which are like um, generosity, ethical behavior, patience, um, mindfulness, compassion, equanimity. He has embodied all those qualities. And that embodiment and those teachings, he is the blessed one, and these blessings, it's said, then flow down to us over the centuries. As I said, 2,600 years ago, I mean 2,600 um, years later, we're still trying to move through the world with loving kindness and compassion and clarity and equanimity. And so by attuning our minds to the Buddha and all these qualities that he has, it's a practice of, it's a calming practice. It's conducive to joy and happiness. It's not something that we do. It's very uncommon. I don't know anybody who does it outside of Bhikkhu Bodhi. I'm sure they do it in monasteries and, and um, monks and nuns do it. But in a lay uh, setting, you very rarely hear this. And so to recognize that this is present and to, you know, when taking refuge in the Buddha, there's this, this whole panoply of qualities that you can connect with. You know, I think the, I think, you know, we often talk about he was a human and he was able to get to this place of freedom offers a lot of hope for people. Um, and, and reflecting on that allows that, that calmness and that, that, uh, that, uh, that, concentrated collectedness of the mind so it's really helpful um, and then that moves into insight practice so then you have clarity and awareness so that's the nine qualities that are um, really interesting and then and offer protection offer a grounding the next one is um, I think you're all familiar with which is uh, loving-kindness metta Oh, I had it on the other page. Um, you know, which is which metta, loving kindness practice, is a protection, and this is how the Buddha taught it. It's a protection against anger and hatred. It's you know the 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 metta sutta or the teaching around metta is in the in the um, the sutta where the monks were were doing a retreat in the forest under the trees and the devas in the trees were getting pretty annoyed with these monks um, taking up all their space. So they started, you know, being ghost-like and trying to scare them. And the monks went running back to the Buddha and the Buddha gave them the metta practice and said, go back and offer goodwill. And that is the antidote. Metta is the antidote to hatred and anger. This shifting the mind into goodwill, this shifting the mind into, into kindness and compassion. It's the softening of the heart. It's the softening of the armor, um, which is a really lovely place to be. 
it's a it's a lovely place to to be able to land because it's it also includes empathy and goodwill towards others it's it's driven by an altruistic motivation you're not looking for something in return loving kindness and all the brahma viharas heart practices are are unconditional you know i was listening to a talk yesterday where people were talking about anger and um and rage especially about with all the stuff that's going on in our world today and and it makes sense to have anger but there's there she talked about this woman ruby sales talked about there's redemptive anger and non-redemptive anger redemptive anger is just i hate you because i hate you and redemptive anger is this or this outrage that leads to action and it's like i'm not going to hate you but i'm outraged by the actions not you I see you as a as a really confused individual. I'm not going to dehumanize you, but I'm not going to allow you to do the the awful things. The harm. I'm not going to allow you to cause the harm you're causing. So that is imbued with goodwill. I don't want to hurt you, but I want you to stop doing what you're doing. And so that that is not where you are filled with rage and anger if you can cultivate goodwill that's a protection for ourselves against this this toxin of anger and hatred it's a really powerful one um and then the next two are somewhat somewhat along the same lines um when i did the satipatthana retreat with bhikkhu analio in uh, a couple of months ago we spent a day uh, not on the 32 parts of the body. He condensed it down, uh, being very efficient. He just called it skin, bones, and flesh, which is pretty much, you know, the 32 parts of the body is all is skin, bones, flesh, but it's also urine and pus and bile and phlegm and nails and hair and this bones and it's everything. So there's 32 parts that you can re- reflect on. Um, Originally, when the Buddha taught it, he taught it to monastics, when, especially for when they were uh, struggling with um, uh, sexual lust, because Theravada monastics are celibate. So it's a way to really, oh, you're you're attracted to this other person. Well, start thinking about their bile and their pus and their, their little, 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 little. that'll kind of break that. But it's also, as uh, Analia was talking about it, it's a way to um, break the attachment to our bodies and our thinking that this is who we are and going, you know what, we are actually constituent parts. So to recognize that um, what a body really is, our constituent parts. And then along with that is the last uh, protective meditation, which is death. It's a it's it reminds us of our mortality. You know, death is uncertain. Oh well, death is certain, but the time of it is uncertain, you know, and we can't take anything with us. So it's a it's a way to reframe our perspective of the world when we're all caught up in our lives and our involvement with this life, if we stop and reflect on death, we'll have this this broader picture and go you know, this thing I want so badly, I can't take it with me. It's not going to get me to nirvana. It's only going to get me a, a, a temporary satisfaction. 
So the protection offered by this practice is the protection against craving and attachment, which again is one of the defilements. So we see, you know, we let go of trivial things and, um, and not, we don't blow up their importance and we reframe on what to what's really important. You know, we sort out the important from the trivial and, and bring our attention to what makes sense, what supports us, what's wise, what's wholesome, what's helpful, what's beneficial. So that that is the reflection. I think the 32 parts of the body and the recollection on death, they're kind of go along with that. When I, I, I know I've said it before when I did that retreat with Analio, one day was on death, one day was on um, the, the flesh, uh, skin, bones, and flesh, and another day was on... Um, yeah, it was, it was it was pretty much oh yeah on reflection on death was I'm breathing in is this going to be my last or I'm exhaling is this going to be my last exhale or I'm going to breathe in is this my last one no I've got another one so it's really this might be it this might be it this might be it um, so These are practices and they're, they're formal practices. The last three years, as I said, you might be familiar with the first one, maybe not so much. Um, but these are practices that are really helpful, I think, when we get caught up in, in this or that or that story. If we stop and we bring ourselves back to right here, maybe some loving kindness if I'm caught up in rage. Can I find that place of goodwill? Can I find that place of softening? Oftentimes we need to do it for ourselves. Not necessarily. Sometimes we're kinder to others than we are to ourselves. So this practice of, of kindness and metta to ourselves is, is liberating and a protection against that, that harshness, that harm. Because if we don't have goodwill, it's so easy to cause harm. So easy. And the, the, the 32 parts of the body and the recollection on death, impermanence, it's, it's, it's here. So when we find ourselves becoming attached to permanence, we want things to always be this way, or this will fix me, or that will fix me, to begin to loosen that attachment, there's a freedom there. So these are practices that offer freedom as well. They're so vital and so core to the to to moving through the world through this path of freedom that even if we don't do a formal practice on them, it's helpful to reflect on them. And and like with so many of these teachings, oftentimes when we're struggling with something in our lives, stuck in the middle of dukkha, if we stop and maybe do a quick run through, it's like, oh, this one will be helpful right now. You know, where are you? What what serves this moment? It's like the Eightfold Path. Oh, which one of these is helpful? Or the paramis. Oh, I need to work on patience. These are tools, again, in the toolbox that we have in order to move through the world, in order to find some freedom and some liberation. And, uh, you know, as the sutta says, um, well, it says it about a lot of things, but there's one thing that when developed and cultivated leads to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nirvana. I think there's, it's all of these things. So 
Thank you so much, my friends, for your kind attention. I really appreciate um, being here with you, so thank you. What's, what's, what's your take or what's the kind of you know, prevailing take from the Buddhism viewpoint of all this mass shooting going on in the United States? You know, from the viewpoint of, you know, meta or, <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. Thanks, Etsuko. It's interesting. I was talking, I think it was to my husband today when I saw the, there was another one in Austin, Texas. Mm -hmm. um, yes. This morning, yeah. And we're, I think we talked about how, you know, there's, there's just like, like you were saying every other day seemingly. And I don't know. I'm not trained in any kind of psychology or therapy. I have my own thoughts around this, but from a lot of the stuff I'm reading and not necessarily um, directly related to Buddhism or mass shootings, but um, A, I think people in this country are so disconnected from um, uh, each other and that they don't know how to deal with feelings. Um, I saw that, I, you know, we've talked about it before. Out last year, the first couple of months of the pandemic, people were kind of all doing it, but then after it started draw, dragging on, and that's when, you know, people went to the state house in Wisconsin and said, blah, stop this nonsense. And it's because they don't know how to hold pain and they need a way out of it. And we live in a culture. So that's, that's the one thing. And then we live in a culture that glorifies shooting, glorifies guns, makes it so easy to do. Um, that there's that I yeah I've been doing a lot of reading for this class I'm taking about in fact I was reading today um, you know we don't know our histories and we don't know our stories and we were dis we're disconnected so much from others and you know we live in this society that tells us it should be this way and it's it's never it can never be the way they tell us it can be. And so there's a, a, a big gap and people are in, and people who do these things, they are in so much pain. I know I, I there if you know, I'm sure there's too sometimes there's mental illness, but there's also a lot of pain. I was looking up a couple of weeks ago. There was something on about a serial killer, like old school, like old school serial killer of 40 years ago. <laughs> And I looked up in Wikipedia and they gave his biography and it was horrific what the, the poor person went through all through growing up. A horrific childhood, horrific, you know, teen years. And um, and so that there was no way they could cope. And that was that was how it came out. So there's this empathy for the pain they're in. And a lot of these people who do this, A, are in a lot of pain. B, they are bought into a story. I'm thinking about, you know, the white supremacy, supremacist shootings and, and those types of things bought into this, this way that we have dehumanized others. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very easy to kill others when you can create a, a story about them to make them less human or less than you. Uh, that's what people have had to do with everyone um, 
you know, um, so that we can do awful, awful things. And so this is cultural conditioning. It's not just necessarily individual conditioning, but people are caught in the cultural delusion of this person is worth more than this person. And so it's easy, again, to do horrific things when we believe that. Whether we consciously believe it or not, we have this this in, inside us. So this this healing that has to take place is, is personal healing, but it's also societal healing. You know, there's a lot of damage that's been done in the last 500 years in this country. It's it's we we're founded on horror. Um, so uh, it's it's really important that we acknowledge that so the healing can happen. And this is where the loving kindness comes in, even if it's just a little bit. And we may not get to that place because sometimes this is graduate level stuff. But we want to not, you know, use, lose sight of each other's humanity. That that's kind of my take, and it I think it is it is kind of the Buddhist lens from the Buddhist teachers I've heard talk about it, <clears throat> but also a, a bigger chick picture as well. Thank you for visiting Undefended Dharma. These teachings are freely offered. However, if you would like to make a donation to help support the technology that makes these podcasts possible, please visit marystancavage.org backslash support. Thank you.